standing up in McKinney. This is According to Callus. <laughs> oh. And I'm back in the saddle. I've had a week of an unintended downtime uh, between having a couple of different uh, minor catastrophes going on in my life and my computer basically nuking itself internally. Whew. January's been a tough month. <sighs> Two more days left. Well, I guess technically three more days left. Three more days left in the month, uh, and it has not been a good month to Mr. Callis and family. <clears throat> that being said, we are again back in the saddle. Today, we're going to talk about some corollaries between the development of the church and the development of of the American government in our understanding thereof. And I think there's corollary to them, but not necessarily a direct correlation, just a similarity. Let's put it that way. Before we do that, let me remind you, yes, I know I've been gone a week, but I'm back. I don't plan on going anywhere else for quite some time. Going to try and make up for some lost time. <clears throat> The best way you can help me do that is to continue to grow this program, continue to show up and help me do a good job getting the word out, you know, taking a stand. So the way we do that is to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. Now, you may be aware that I had a Texas Tuesday drop. I'm sorry, a Texas Tuesday all recorded and crashed and dropped out. If I've happened to run across you in person or not, that is the case. So I'm not going to redo that. However, I will be back tomorrow with yet another Texas Tuesday. But today, today we're going to focus on just getting back to speed, drawing a couple correlations. And if you'll do me a favor, go like, share, and subscribe to the program. That's right. And if you're feeling particularly motivated, you can go ahead and rate and review this program. And I'm at your favorite or your likely favorite social media. I have both a page and a group over at Facebook and I drop in over at MeWe and Gab. Someday I'm going to figure out how to do this other social media stuff without having to invest another hour or two of my day every day getting this stuff posted there. Until that time, that's where I'm at and you can help me and I need your help. We're, we're doing the Lord's work trying to save the Republic and I can't do it alone. All right. So I was listening to on what the show, I should say, I was listening to, I got to kick off this rust for missing five and a half days. <clears throat> so I, I was listening to various things over the last week. And one of the things that struck me, the, the church Right. And I'm using the church universal, not necessarily the Catholic church universal, but the church is, if you will, universal. So we've got two tracks or maybe three, but I'm going to go with the, the historical church that bases itself both on the scripture as well as tradition, which case you would include the Catholic, the Orthodox, and I guess the Oriental church. And they all have their own you know, traditional differences, but they use tradition as well as scripture to kind of determine how their church runs. And then you have the Protestant church. 
The Protestant church rejected all of this. And it started with Martin Luther and it spiraled out from there. Zwingli, Calvin, um, Wesley. There's a couple others. Knox, right? These guys, they said, we only need scripture. And we're going to get rid of all this other stuff. Now, I could make a good argument that most of it was appropriate to get rid of. And and that's from my Protestant point of view. I'm not purposely trying to avoid picking a fight with somebody that is Catholic or Orthodox or Oriental Church members that might strongly disagree. I mean no disrespect. I'm just saying I can make that argument as a Protestant. But if you want to follow that, that's fine. The distinction I'm going to draw is... When you had fences, if you will, that were put up through the, we'll call them the traditional churches, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Oriental churches, there was a constant passing on of the torch, right? The historical and the generational passing on. So there was a reluctance to change things for change's sake, and there was a traditional hierarchical basis of how things are done. Now, for right, wrong, or otherwise, that's the way it is in my understanding. And and somebody can feel free to argue or or you know get lost in the details. Just from the outside looking in, I, as a Protestant, that's how I see things. And that's neither good nor bad. It's just an is. Now, when I look at the Protestant church, it's based largely on the opinions or the ideas of the founder's understanding based upon the scripture. And that's fine insofar as they're basing it upon scripture, but that also is largely dependent on the idea of their understanding, their interpretation. And in many times, it didn't have the benefit of a bunch of other input from other people and other scholars. It was largely based on one individual. And that individual then maybe picked successors or found people to build upon what they had started but they had uprooted the majority of what they were doing. Now you can make the argument that Lutheranism and to a lesser extent Calvinism, and certainly with the church of England or the Anglican church, they're very closely associated with the Catholic church and the way they do things because they didn't uproot everything, but later Protestant churches or versions of Protestantism, the only thing that's in common is the scripture. So, why do I bring this up? What am I getting at? Okay, so the way the church runs in 2024, well, let's let's just dial it back. Prior to Francis, right? So prior to the hippie pope getting in there, there was a strong reliance on tradition and how things were done and a process. And there was not a lot of radical change uh, if you set aside Vatican II, Right? And that's on the Catholic side. Now, the Orthodox Church is a little is even slower still, from my understanding, and and I can't speak to the Oriental Church. Whereas Protestantism, largely motivated by the strong Baptist presence, if you will, in America, particularly, kind of. Well, let, before we get there, let, let's just finish on this. So they're steeped in tradition. They're steeped in the way these things are done. And most of the elders or the people that have been involved can explain why they do things that way and what the importance of that is and why it matters. Okay. 
So that's the that's one stream of we'll call it the church. The other stream of the church basically took one man or one small group of men's interpretation of something that had pre-existed them by let's just say 1400 years and redesigned how it would be and from that point forward they started doing things differently and then it's got many many branches or graphs or or cuts if you will along the way where it's pruned to become its own thing so they have a very shorter term or very much shorter term on how they understand these things and to a degree they leave a lot of it open to interpretation on the individual as opposed to the wise learned men okay so there's your two distinctive ways of approaching um the church Now, I went through all that trouble and time to try and get that out there. So now we're going to simplify it and we're going to say the Catholic, Orthodox, Oriental Church is a traditional based church, okay? Or tradition plus scripture, whereas the Protestant church largely rejects tradition or they have a new tradition plus scripture, or if you want to invert that to the proper uh, priorities, they have scripture plus some tradition. Whereas in my opinion or my understanding of things, it's tradition equals scripture and scripture equals tradition in, in the traditional church. And again, not trying to pick a fight, not disparaging, just giving my understanding and explanation as a Protestant. Now, why does this matter? Or where does this corollary come from? So, If you're going to have institutional rot, if you're going to have deviation, if you're going to wreck the system, if you will, it is a long haul and a much slower process in a traditional based organization. Whereas in the interpretive light tradition, light version of things, you can throw new things in at a regular basis. Now, again, why does this matter? Well, you recall, I talked about the idea of women pastors or elders. Now the traditional based church rejects that out of hand. It's not an option. There are other things for women to do, but being a, being a speaking pastor or being an elder are not among them. It is only in Protestantism where they reinterpret things or reconsider things or investigate the scripture to come up with new creative ways to work around what has been traditionally understood for thousands of years plus that they come up with these issues. Now, now that that makes sense and you, I've given you an application, let's set that aside for just a moment and let's look at the way that we understand Well, actually, before we do that, let's back up one second. We talk about that apostolic succession, right? In the traditional based church, they say everything came back from the original apostles. There's a disconnect within the Protestant church, though they would argue that. But all the tradition based churches say, well, we start with the apostles. Then we came to their people that they taught in the first generation, the second generation. So there's a generational line and let's call it minimal deviation from the church standard from based back in 33 AD 
2024, right? Whereas the Protestant church doesn't really have that, at least not officially. Okay, now, and I've given you an application. So now that I've done that, let's go back and look at the United States government, how it functions and the two streams of thought. Because in a, in a, the primary motivation for me taking the time to do this is based largely off of Brian McClanahan's podcast. He's done, I guess, four episodes in a row that were all interrelated, extremely interesting in talking about the way things are going on right now. So that would be episode 423. I'm sorry. Yeah, 423 through 426. Now, why do I bring in this other guy? <laughs> What's the point? Because if you go and listen to these episodes and, and you get the education, I mean, this is a guy with a doctorate in history that's a Southern scholar, and he's taking the time to give you information and understanding of things that we wouldn't normally get. And certainly if you were born north of the Mason-Dixon line, you certainly would not have gotten this, okay? So as the traditional transition occurred from the founding generation to their children's generation, and I guess to a lesser extent, their grandchildren's generation, you deal with how things start to change, right? So the Jeffersonians were in ascendance in 1800, but that was an outgrowth of the influence of Thomas Jefferson and to some degree, even James Madison or George Mason. And they pushed this through this Virginia mindset of how things should be done. And the way they understood things. Now, keep in mind, these guys were around when a lot of this stuff happened. Now, Jefferson was not present for the for the conventions. He was in Paris, I guess, and working on things. But his contemporaries, his people, his team were present and they they were involved in all these things. And there was a certain understanding and, and a bargain made, if you will, when they created the Constitution to to govern these United States going forward, right? And how did that look and how did it work? So if you follow the tradition, if you will, and follow through these guys, now I think in, uh, it would be fair to say they're a Southern agrarian mindset, maybe. I, I think that's a proper phraseology that uh, Brian McClanahan uses. But these people were of a similar mind, right? And they wanted to continue with tradition, continue with what worked and build upon that. And they believed in the natural rights. They believed in all these different things, but they had a progression on which they were going to go to it. And coincidentally, you had the Yankees, right? The Northeastern clique, the Adams, to, to a lesser extent, Washington, but certainly in Washington was roped in. He was kind of the bridge, if you will. And then you've got Hamilton, and Burr and all these individuals in the Northeast. And they're looking at the power. They're looking at how can we manipulate events to get what we want. Now, maybe that's not polite. Maybe you want to say that I'm being mean, but the fact of the matter is when you look at things, there was a power struggle from the very onset, right? You had the sectionalism in play, but predominantly those that won the, they won the constitutional battle from the onset. You were going to have things that you could do at your state individually. And you stayed out of the other state's business and you had this federal government that was supposed to be, I guess, the protector and the guarantor that things were going to be done fairly, but it was supposed to be very minimal and very constrained. 
And then along you had along the way, right? So you've got this generational succession going on in the South, particularly in Virginia and the Carolinas. But in the North, you've got the latest uh, person injecting themselves into it. I mean, so he's talked about to a degree where Joseph's story recreated American history, the, the founding myths, if you will. And into a large part, you got this guy Marshall that was involved from the get go that turned a lot of things on its head. So he reinterpreted things. It was almost like John Marshall was his very own reformer. He didn't like the way things went. So as the um, chief judge of the Supreme Court, right, the chief justice, excuse me, he decided to start basically creating things and making things. And it was because people didn't catch it right away, because people didn't refute it right away, or because, quite frankly, they didn't have adequate means in which to deal with it. This took root. So you've got this reformed decision of how the country came to be. And then you've got Joseph's story that builds upon that. And then you've got other people that follow along after that. And it culminates in Abraham Lincoln, basically fully realizing the refounding of our country. And now if you fast forward to 2024 and you You've basically got your choice, right? You've got the Southern conservative tradition. And and what's interesting is there is an episode talking about the three branches of conservatism, right? And and I'm not a huge, huge fan of the term conservative because clearly that has not been successful. They really have not really conserved anything. And I don't know how else to put it, but at least there was a traditional way of transitioning through these things. And, you know, from generation to generation, they they played off and there was a succession plan, if you will. And a lot of these people met their fate in 1865, in 1869, and they were dismissed and defeated militarily. And they, the North, right? The sectionalists, the Yankees, they did their best to erase all of this history. They did their best to rewrite it and recreate it and come up with a new version or a new vision for these United States. So the corollary being is they did what the reformers did. And when they interpret the scripture, and again, I, I'm saying that only as a comparison, not an equivalent, but a comparison, right? It's an analogy to say the constitution's like the scripture, although there are people that do think it's scriptural, but I'm not one of them. They reinterpreted what it means. And because they've added some things later on, they say that supersedes that, that, that trumps what was already there. The thing that we agreed to in the beginning no longer really matters because, you know, the 13th or actually, I guess, yeah, the 13th and the 14th, and I guess and to an extent the 15th Amendment were adopted by the states. Never mind it was done under duress. Never mind that nobody quite understood what it all meant. Those now supersede because we made these states agree to this because we had a military dictatorship in those states as a result of them trying to do something that we didn't approve of, right? Because we recreated the rules. We've rewritten the rules. And this is how things function now in the new America, the new states that are united permanently. Now, I'm fairly certain that back in 
1800, nobody would have agreed with that. Nobody, nobody would have bought that. But by 1870, they have done their best to stamp out any resistance and deal with anybody that thought otherwise. So that by 1970, unless you were in some parts of the South, it was just understood and always known that, well, no, you're not allowed to do certain things. That's not that, that no matter what the tradition was, that was wrong. So the corollary being that the Yankees winning, the the Yankee version of events trumped what the tradition is. They superseded it. They replaced it much like Protestantism did the same thing. Now I can say this as a Protestant, I'm quite comfortable with the changes or the improvements or the revitalization that came about through that. I'm less excited even as a former Yankee or redeemed Yankee, <laughs> I'm less excited about those things that were forced upon the rest of the union. The The rest of the things that were forced upon people that had no other choice because they had lost a fight. Now, some of this is going to come up tomorrow. It's, it's going to be directly related to the text of Tuesday. But to me, you have this guiding group of people that came in after the fact and reinterpreted things and and reapplied what everybody understood at the time of meaning one thing they they went in and said no, no no it actually means this this is what we wanted to do now now as an aside If you think this is a stretch, if you think that maybe I've kind of missed it here, consider that before the 1860s, there were at least twice that the the New England states wanted to part ways. And and you didn't hear anybody from the southern states or the mid-Atlantic states tell them, no, you can't go. No, you're not allowed to. No, this is an unbreakable covenant between all of us and you must stay. They, they didn't threaten to subjugate them militarily and force them to stay. No, they, they cut a deal. They, they made something work to where they would agree to stay as part of the union because they realized at that time that it made more sense. They were vulnerable in the 1820s, right? They had just won the War of 1812 by large part happenstance. They couldn't chance another war with Great Britain or for that matter, France. So they they said, well, what do we need to do to make this work? How can we go forward? That didn't happen in the 1860s. That was off the table in the 1860s. The, The Yankee states were placated multiple times to stay part of the Union but when the, when the South had had enough, when the Southern states said, we just want a deal here, and the newly elected president basically said no deal, that's where this comes from, right? And I'm not looking to justify certain things that either side did, but what I am suggesting is you've got a divergent view of how things played out and a divergent view of how the constitution works, much like how you do within, you know, Christianity, right? You've got your traditional based Christianity out of Catholicism, um, orthodoxy and Orientalism. And then you've got your neo-orthodoxy or sola scriptura, right? 
in the Protestantism. And of course, as a Protestant, I, I favor that, but I will freely acknowledge there's some major concerns about the fact that there was no tradition that these things were based on. It was cast off for this new vision, this new idea. And some of it can be tied back. Some of it is understandable, but that, that break in time, that, that resetting has some challenges, some things to overlook. Likewise, we see the very same notion going on since reconstruction, right? You had a bunch of people that showed up that weren't from the South that came in and reordered things, redecided or reconstructed really quite frankly, but they upended everything. They, they changed everything. They were abusive. They're out of line. Now keep in mind with the exception of a counterattack by Lee, none of the Southern forces really invaded North. They, they, they did that as a last ditch effort. They were trying to relieve the invasion that was ongoing to the South. So there was really no cause for what happened, but it did. Yeah, you, they were defeated, defeated handedly. And there are consequences to losing a war, yes, but I don't think they wanted war any more than the vast majority of the other people. But that's what happened. And when that was over, they basically came through and rewrote everything, recreated the understanding. They, they tried to reform recreate, refound the entirety of the nation, the entirety of the history, the entire understanding of how things were working. And we ended up with this national monstrosity on the Potomac and very few people were left to fight against it. Now, there's a whole lot of other things going on here. And certainly this analogy between the churches and the, and the union break down quickly but just then on the surface, I want you to understand there, there was more of a traditional based order that understood how things work and why they were there. And that was offset and destroyed by those that decided to reform. Now, what's interesting is the history of Thanksgiving, the history of our founding is now largely based on what came out of Plymouth Plantation or what came off of Plymouth Rock, what came from the pilgrims. But in actual fact, there was a competing prior established foundational basis of these United States in Jamestown, right? And those things happened beforehand and they have been continuous. 1607, I believe is accurate. So you got, you got to consider, is there something else going on here? Is there something they don't want you to know? Why did they take so much time and effort to recreate things? Why did they want to stamp out this idea of liberty or independence or a free state for that matter? What's, what's in it for those that seek to control us? So this, I guess, would be the opening salvo of what should be an interesting week, right? Tomorrow we're going to talk about, you know, Texas Tuesday and how does the state power relate to the federal power and how does the constitution really act in this regard? Not what does the court say? Not what is a war that happened 160 years say? What does it mean now? What does it matter now? What can we do now? And with that, this has been According to Callus, and I will see you. That's right.
on the other side.